And you can find in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, let me make a couple of quick appeals first. And uh, the first is, I guess, as you saw the choir nice and full up here, but if you're a tenor, um, I want you to think long and hard um, about those four guys holding down the fort, you know. But anyway, the second thing is I did, I did want to make an appeal uh, to, uh, for anyone who, who has been th- ever thought about or if you've got room in your schedule to help tutor. And if you know that we have a tutoring ministry here, it's Tutoring After School Kids, our task ministry. And I think it is one of the, one of the neatest things that we do here in terms of bringing children from our community in. And we have an opportunity to love them, to, uh, to teach them, to help them succeed in life, um, but more than that, as they succeed in our community, we all succeed, you know, when, when it, it blesses the whole community, but also every, we, we meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 3.30 to 5.30, every time we meet, um, Donna Jones, who is a phenomenal Bible teacher, shares with them from the scripture, we, um, so we are, we are teaching them and leading them to Christ and preaching the gospel to them, we've given them Bibles, I mean it's just a wonderful ministry to love them and to lead them toward Christ and to bless uh, our community, um, and we could have as many kids almost as we have tutors, you know, there's, there's such a need, they have to come recommended by the schools that we partner with, um, we have two little girls who are asking if they could be in the program, but we don't have enough tutors, and, uh, and there are more. So it, anyway, it's one of those things, if you are able, even if you're able to do one day, um, I think my wife does Tuesdays because she can't do Thursday, and so she has someone, they job share, and uh, they have a, she shares a child with someone else, and so we'll even take you for one day or two days uh, would be wonderful. But if you've thought about it, um, let me know. Uh, let Reed Scott know if you know who he is. If you don't, just tell me, and I will connect you and uh, let the church office know. But we would love to have a few more tutors uh, in that ministry. All right, we are in First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. A sermon called Inexpressible Joy, but it's a sermon about suffering. Hear then the word of God. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we gather this morning as your church to sit at your feet and to learn of you. Father, your word is true and we need to know it. And we need it to inform our hearts and our minds. We need it to shape our thinking and our feeling. We need it to govern our lives and to lead us into the truth so that we may walk before you in ways that please you. So, Father, as we hear your word this morning, speak to us. Change us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I believe that as much as anything in the Christian life, we need a good theology 
of suffering. We need to, to have in our heads and in our hearts a good understanding of how the Bible, how God tells us, speaks to us about suffering, what, what role it plays in our lives and how we are to experience and think about it and feel about it. We need a good theology of suffering because we suffer. And if you haven't yet, you will. One way or another, sooner or later, some more than others. But the reality is, if we do not have a good theology of suffering before we suffer, I usually, my observation is it makes the suffering worse. Because not only do you have the suffering, but in, in the suffering there's also spiritual confusion. There's also a, a, a sense of disconnection with, with God. If we're unprepared, it can throw our spiritual world into chaos. So we will not only lack in that moment of trial and pain, the resources we need to to deal with it, but we will have spiritual confusion. And so I think it is best to be steeped in a biblical theology of suffering, best before we suffer. You know, we can find it, we can come to it in the midst of our suffering, but it's a hard place to to be digging a well at that point to, to find the resources we need in the midst of it. Piper says, suffering, say in your bulletin under the first point, suffering will reveal what is really in your heart. Or maybe this didn't make it, I don't know. Suffering will reveal, this, this, I don't think it is in your bulletin, so listen carefully. John Piper says, suffering will reveal what is really in your heart. It will test you. Where do you turn when you are tested? Do you turn toward Jesus? Or do you turn inward or turn away? Suffering will reveal what is really in our hearts. Do we press in or do we pull away? And God says in so many ways, and he says it over and over again throughout the scripture, scripture, both in story and in precept and in the teaching of God's word, it says again and again we need to press in, right? That he never leaves us nor forsakes us. He never abandons us. He's always with us and he walks with us. And in the midst of all of that, the scripture says it is a time to pull in, to press in, to reach out, to dig deep, to find and to know him in the midst of it. When our temptation is... Pull away. There is some mystery in suffering, I know that. And there are not clear answers. There are so many times I've sat with people and the question is why? Why? And in the particular that you're asking, we rarely know, sometimes we may, sometimes we may discover, but we rarely know the answer. So there's a little bit of mystery in the particular, why this, why now, why me, why this way? We don't have the answers to all these things, which is why the Bible calls it a test. When we are in the wilderness of suffering, we get to know God better. And when in the macro sense, and some people say, why? And I say, all I know is in the, in the wilderness, when all is stripped away, we discover God in a way that we have never discovered him before. We need him in a way we've never needed him before. We rely on him in a way we've never had to rely on him before. And there are things that happen in our suffering 
that don't happen anywhere else. I'm surprised in some ways at how much the Bible has to say about it. God's people have suffered since the beginning of time through the New Testament records that we have in the founding of the church in the midst of a Roman Empire, a hostile world. God's people have suffered. If you study church history, God's people have suffered. But it has so much to say about how God works in the lives of his people when they suffer. Now, what immediately surprises me, even as I look at this text with Peter, is how he compares suffering to fire in one point. It's like gold being tested, proven in the fire as it's melted and it's purified and it's changed. He says it, it's, it's suffering is, is like fire. I don't know that there is anything, as I think about pain, that is more painful than, than fire. And at the same time, at the same moment that he compares suffering to fire and this painful experience, he begins and ends this little section talking about joy. And it's one of those things that the Bible that he that puts together that is so hard sometimes for us to wrap our minds around. But that's what he does. He begins and ends with this confident, faith-filled. I mean, they're, they're not just mentioning joy, you know, the possibility maybe somewhere if we can possibly. No, in verse 6 he says, in this we rejoice, even though, even though we may have to through, um, go through for a little while this grievous, grievous, this hard, this difficult, this painful, you know, suffering. He says, but in this still we rejoice. And then as you get to the end of it, as he talks about what happens as we go through this process, he says that, that, that we want to be found in the praise, glory, and honor of Christ. And he says, and though we don't see him now, we love him. And though we don't, um, we don't, we don't see him in this moment, we believe in him and we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. On both ends. In this we're rejoicing. And even though we're tested by fire, he says, and we, we don't see him when the flames are high and the water is deep, but, but we know him and we love him and we believe in him and here is joy. No ifs, ands, or buts. He says, in this we rejoice. You may have entered the crucible. You know, the crucible is that metal or uh, other material that can withstand heat. It's that which you use to put your gold and your silver or other precious metals or whatever it is you want to melt and put it in the fire and you want what's in it to melt. Well, the thing itself doesn't. And so that is the crucible. And you'd be in the crucible is to be in the fire being melted. And he says in this, even though we have entered the crucible, We have an unchanging source of joy. And he says in this, verse 6, it starts with, and and as you can see when you read something like that, that I don't know enough to know what this is. If you start just in verse 6, in this you rejoice, even even though you may enter into the crucible for a period of time. In this you rejoice. What is this? Well, it's everything that he said up through verses 1 to 5. Right, it's, it's the sermons over the last two or three weeks, which if you haven't heard, I would encourage you, they're always online and they're always free. I encourage you to go back and take a listen. But the, the gist of it was this, everything to this point, he's, as he's writing them, he tells them, you are God's chosen people. Right, that's how he opens it out, that's how he addresses them. You are God's chosen people. 
Right? You are foreknown by God the Father from before the foundations of the world. You've been sanctified by the power of his spirit and brought to the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ. And you've been sprinkled or covered with his blood and entered into a covenant, this covenant making with God as his people. He says you've been born again by an almighty work of God into a, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When he rose, we rose. And so we are born again by his power. And he says that, and so we're born again into an inheritance as co-heirs with Jesus, as Jesus is an heir of all things with God. He says we are now co-heirs with Christ. And so we have this inheritance. And he says this inheritance is being kept for us. It doesn't perish. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't fade. It doesn't, it's not subject to rust or moth or thieves. It is kept in heaven for you. As sure as the sun rose this morning, that day, he says, is coming. And then he says, and we are kept for it, right? That's the next thing he says in the end of verse 5. Not only is it being kept for us, but you are being guarded through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed by the very power of God. It's kept for you and you are kept for it. And the day is coming when you will be united to your inheritance. And it is the power of God. We said this, you know, if it says that guard, God guards something, it's guarded. Um, it's safe. There's no power. There's no greater power in the universe And so as Peter enters into this and saying, even though, and and he's writing to people, as I said, they're a lot like us, they live in this world, and he said, even though you will have to enter the crucible, and we will suffer grievous trials in the course of of between here and heaven, you know, he says, even though, he says, in this we rejoice. In other words, these things are always true. These things don't change. These things are never taken away. Whatever it is that we suffer, whatever it is that he calls us to pass through on our way to glory, the deep waters and the licking flames of what feels so overwhelming, he says, there is a rock on which we stand that does not change. They are always a cause for joy if you can find the truth of them in the midst of the fire, if you can fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who himself ran the race that was set for him, endured what he endured for us. And if we, in the midst of it, he says, these things are always true. They are always a source for joy. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, says Job in the midst of his fire. Even though we suffer for a time, whatever is going on, however bad it gets, God is still God. Salvation is irrevocable. His promises are unshakable. And his keeping power is irresistible. So F.B. Meyer, who did make the bulletin there under your second point, he says that we may question whether we ever truly drink of Christ's joy until all the other sources of joy are eliminated. 
We confuse the gift and the giver and when we drink from all these other fountains and and we have happiness in life and joy and sometimes it's confused in terms of how much of that is actually our Savior, our God. And he says, we may question whether we've ever truly drunk of Christ's joy until all the other sources of joy are eliminated by earthly sorrow and we are driven to seek that joyous blessedness which no earthly sun can wither and no winter freeze can take from us. When all is stripped away, what lies underneath that is always true, that is always true forever and ever endeavor and so in verses 8 and 9 I think as he talks about this and he says though you have not seen him and some of these folks never met Jesus Peter had and the other apostles had and he's saying you believe in a savior you've never met and he says and though you do not see him now you know, in the midst of the suffering, and again, he's writing to these churches in Asia Minor that are, that are undergoing persecution and suffering of various kinds. And it may have to do with persecution from the, a hostile state, the empire, but it can be also just be your neighbors and religious persecution of the people around you and people losing jobs and suffering in all the ways that we suffer. And he's saying, you, don't, you may not see him now, but you believe in him. You know him and you love him. And he says, and there is a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It's not a happiness in the circumstances. It's not a smiling and whistling as I go every day. It may be in the crucible, but in the crucible, even, he says, there is underneath, even as we tear our clothes and suffer, an inexpressible joy to know that there is meaning in it, God is with me in it and that this too will pass. These light and momentary afflictions are not worthy of being compared to what will be revealed. We know him and we love him and there is an inexpressible, deep, abiding, unchanging, rock-like joy in just knowing Jesus. A well of joy and glory. He says it satisfies and so Peter and others, the other writers of the, of the Scripture tell us God has a purpose in our suffering. Not just that He is with us and we always have things that are true in spite of it, but also there is purpose in it. And it's part of what he points at in the midst of this. And while we can't answer the particulars of why me or why now or why this or why is there so much suffering in the world in general, we can in an overall sense say our, ta- our faith will be tested. It will, because we will suffer before we die, one way or another. Suffering will put all of our faith to the test. And so seven, he tells us, after he says in this, we rejoice, even though we enter into these trials. In verse seven, he goes on and he says, so that, so that, for this purpose, the tested genuineness of our faith And in some ways, we will not know the genuineness of it until it is tested. The tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested in fire. It's not an eternal thing. It's not something that will last forever. Like your faith, as your faith turns to sight and you know him and love him forever. Gold is not an eternal thing, but but it's more precious even than the gold that is tested through fire. And so he compares it 
to the crucible of the refining of gold in the fire. Gold and silver are put in. We'll stick with gold. He says gold. And he says it's, it's put in a crucible and it's heated to the melting point. And that's the testing of our faith. We're put in some ways, we're put into situations. We're put into pain. Things happen in our lives. And, and I won't even begin to list them because I know the suffering represented in this room and through the years. And it comes in various forms, in various ways. And to the point of the melting, in a sense, are melting. The gold is put in there until it completely loses its shape. And it, it, it is broken, so to speak, from what form it was in. It's, it's, it's molten. Uh, and, and a couple things happen then. Two things, really. One is that it is purified. That from the heart of the metal, the impurities are released. Those things that, that were in there, that didn't belong in there, that are not part of the, the gold, are released and they surface so that they can be removed, can, they can be dealt with and they can be removed. And that, that happens in the refining process. But the second thing that happens is in that molten shape, it can be, it can be remade. It can be reshaped into useful things, right? Into coins, into jewelry. You know, into articles uh, of various kinds for, for usefulness, where that, that dirty, impure nugget wasn't of a lot much use. You don't see very many people carrying around or putting it on a big, you know, you've got to melt it. So sometimes our usefulness to reshape us, for the usefulness, there is this process. Between heaven and our current experience, you and I will go through the fire. Our faith will be heated to the melting point. And there in the crucible, our faith will be revealed. It will be exposed. It will be exercised. We will use it in ways that we haven't used it or needed to use it. It will be exercised, but it will be purified, and so it will be matured. And another thing that could happen in the crucible is it could be also exposed as false. It is in the crucible of suffering that it is revealed to be what it, what it is. And it either purified then and strengthened and made useful or is exposed as false. Jesus tells a parable of soils, if you remember this, in the in the Gospels, he tells a parable, there are four soils, and, you know, one of them's rocky ground, and that, you know, nothing happens there, and one of them's good soil, and, and it's, there's a harvest. And he says, in between those, there are two other soils that they both spring up and have some productivity. One is a rocky soil, one has thorn, ends up having thorns and stuff in it. He says, there are these other two soils where something starts to happen. You know, there's this, you know, a little burst of faith. And he says, but then what happens is that faith is put to the test. If you read the parable, I mean, what it comes down to, the faith is put to the test. It says when the sun came up, you know, it withered because it had no root. And when Jesus explains it to his disciples, what does that mean? He says that when the sun comes up, he says that's suffering. And when suffering enters into the life of a person, you know, the depth of the root is revealed. You know, is it, is it a real faith that will produce the harvest of righteousness in the end? Or Jesus says there are a couple of, couple of soils there where 
it is exposed as false faith. It's not real faith. When they were tempted or when they suffered, they balked. And Jesus says, in the end, there is one good soil and it produces a harvest of righteousness. You see that if God is not our God when we suffer, it's probably not our God. If God is not our God when we suffer, then he is probably not our God at all. This is the whole point of the book of Job, isn't it? Satan comes, you know, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm not expositing Job this morning. When, when Satan comes and tells God, you know, you know, God says, Job, you know, see my servant here. And what Satan says is this. Oh, that's all fine and well. All right, he is blessed beyond measure. <laughs> but if you were to take away his blessings, he would curse you. If you were to put him in the crucible, he would curse you. He would not, he would not, he would not come through the other side. And so what happens is God says, put him in the crucible. God allows Satan a little leash. He says, you can do this and no more. And then he says, you can do this and no more. And then he backs him up and says, all right, you're done. And we see Satan on a leash. But in the midst of that, God allows him to go into the crucible. If you remove his blessings, he will abandon you. First, he suffers the death of all of his children. And then, then he is robbed and, and marauded to the point where he is financially ruined. And then his body was stricken with illness. And there he sits with a, with a wife who seems to mock him. And his family destroyed, his finances in shambles, his body racked with illness. Is he still God? when we live in this broken, fallen, suffering world from which we are not exempt and we're in the crucible, is he still God? Because if he's not God there, he's not God. When Job heard that his children were all killed, this is in your bulletin, the third point, Job 1. Job hears of the death of his children and he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord, Yahweh, God, gave, and Yahweh, the Lord, has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Can you imagine? But it says Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshipped and he said those things. And the two things that I see there, his incredible pain. This is not a stoic who says, oh well, I had 12 children and now I don't. I guess, you know, I can get, you know. He's not a stoic. We're told that he tore his robes and he shaved his head and he covered himself in dust and ashes. Here is a man suffering like few human beings understand suffering. And if you have children, you know what I'm talking about. And he didn't lose one, he lost all. And it says that he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground. And I think he fell on the ground for two reasons. One, I think his legs just gave out with the news. And two, it says, 
there on the ground, he worshipped. If he's not God there, is he God? And if he is God there, he is God. Habakkuk 3, let me tell this one quickly. You know the book of Habakkuk. Um, one I've been thinking about preaching through again. It's such a, a powerful story where you know Habakkuk is crying out to God and, and, he, and he is desperate. He is frustrated with the condition of the church, of God's people. Right? And it's a mess. There's, there's sin and there's rebellion and there's injustice and there's, you know, and they're not, you know, they're just, the church is a mess and he cries out to God, you know, look at your people. Look at your church. When are you going to do something? When are you going to do something, Lord? And God answers him. And he does not like the answer. And God says, yeah, yeah, I got it. The Assyrians are coming. They were about the most brutal, in a brutal time, they were some of the most brutal people there were. And they said, the Assyrians are coming. And it's going to get really, really, really bad for my people. There's going to be suffering. And Job wrestles with God through the book, dealing with this news. This is not what I expected, but either God is God there or he's not God. Right, And so he gets to the end of the book in Habakkuk 3. It's in your bulletin there. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail, if the fields yield no food, if the flock is cut off from the fold, though there be no herd in the stalls, in other words, if there's utter devastation of our country. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord, Yahweh is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread in the high places, the high places of joy and trust and hope in the midst of utter devastation. Faith is knowing and loving and trusting God and knowing that he is good and he is good all the time. D.A. Carson says, the staying power of your faith is neither demonstrated nor developed until it has been tested by suffering. It is neither demonstrated, shown to be genuine and true that it can withstand the sun and its roots are deep enough that it is demonstrated and it is developed, matured. Theologians call this spiritual formation, the forming and the shaping of our souls. You know, I hear people talking about it when they're in suffering, and all of us kind of long for it to come to an ending, and so there's this thing, I, would, I just want to learn the thing I need to learn so I can get out of it. You know, we just want to get out of it as quick as we can, and, and I always am thinking when I hear that, the crucible is just not like that. Right? It's, it's a total meltdown. It's a total melting. It's a, it's a, it's a total breaking down of, of who we were as often or not. It's a reshaping. It's a purifying and a reshaping. And there's no bypassing the fire. There's no shortcut through it. You can't cut it off part way. It can't be half melted. It, 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 just, it needs to have its complete process. And so the, you know, it's the other side that we're looking for. We're shaped in it. It's not what we learn necessarily as an intellectual exercise We are changed by our suffering. We are changed by walking with God, knowing Him, loving Him, and trusting Him in the midst of it. We are matured. We are deepened. We are reformed. We are something different and more than we were because we've been, because of, we've been there. He weans us from the world. Nothing like the crucible 
to clarify what's really important. And so James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, troubles, tribulations, suffering of various kinds because you know something. You know something. You know this. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, maturity, strength, long-suffering, staying power, faith that is truly faith when it's all stripped away. God is still God. And in this... We rejoice, even though we may suffer for a time. And so let me close just pointing to our posture in the midst of this. Dot says under the last point there in your bulletin, I would suggest that some form of suffering is virtually indispensable to holiness. And therefore we must submit. All I can say is this, there are things in our control and there are things not in our control. And when we rebel and we fight and we kick against the goat and we dig in our heels and we resist on those things that we have no control, it only goes worse for us. And there are those things that are out of our control that I believe we simply must bow the knee to our God who is always God, who is always good, who works all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And we bow the knee and say, Yes, Father. Help me to be your person here and now in this. Refining, sanctifying, purifying power. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, there under the last point, he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. Here's a man who thought it was all over. At the very bottom, I can't go on living. We can't go on living. I'm going to... And then he goes on, he says, indeed, we felt we received the sentence of death. And he says this, though, but it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. It is only when we are undone that we discover him in some ways. Now, don't misunderstand me. Nobody wants to suffer. I do not want to suffer. Nobody likes it. It is, it is part of the evil, fallen, cursed, broken experience of this world. And nobody wants it. Nobody enjoys it. And when we do, it is painful. It's confusing. And we will weep bitterly at times. Like Job. And like Job, we may tear our robes. But it's in that dark place, my friends, that we must know to be still and know that he is God. There's an old chorus that we sang back in the early, late 70s, early 80s. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. And as I think of that, as I was thinking of this, I remember singing that with all of my heart. It was the music we had um, at the time. And Spirit of the Living God, that melt me and mold me is crucible language. Melted, you know, molten and, and reshaped into something useful. Melt me, mold me, so you can use me. Let me just close with this thought. 
the one thing that I think in all of this, in this we rejoice and underneath all of that, and though we don't see him now, we, we love him and we know him and we find joy in him is this, it's because he is with us. And sometimes the flames are too high or the water's too deep and we can't see it. And that's what he's saying here. Sometimes you can't, you don't see him now. But he is with us. He is still keeping us. He is still keeping our inheritance. He is still our Savior. Isaiah 43, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. Your inheritance is safe and you are guarded. It will not win. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. You will not be consumed. The flames will not consume you. It hurts and it will be what it is. But here's the thing. I am Yahweh, your God. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. And because you are precious in my eyes and you are honored and I love you, fear not, I am with you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you knew never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that though the waters may get deep and the fires may get hot and life gets the way that it does, Father, we pray that we would know your presence and your power in the midst of it and that though we are melted, May we be purified and refined, matured, and may we know you and love you in ways we never have before. May we be reshaped and useful to you and to your kingdom. Make us what you want us to be. Help us to bow the knee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.